This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Welcome to the Dirsch Show. First, some good news for me, maybe not so good for you, but we're not going to be having a program this coming Monday. It's Labor Day. It's not the reason. The reason is my daughter is getting married for the first time in my 85 years. I'm going to be the father of the bride. And so I'm going to devote all of my attention, all of my time to my wonderful, wonderful daughter and her wonderful, wonderful husband, my new son-in-law and uh, wishing them a, a, a mazel tough and, uh, and, and, and a great, great marriage. And we're looking forward to a wonderful, wonderful wedding. Um, but you can do something interesting on Monday if you miss me. Um, you remember that 13 days ago, um, I made the opening argument for Donald Trump. If I had been his lawyer, not going to be his lawyer, but if I had been his lawyer, I gave you an outline of the opening argument that I would make, and it, it focused very heavily <clears throat> on intention, on can you really prove that Donald Trump uh, actually knew and believed that he had lost uh, the election. And um, you can watch that, and it would be interesting to watch it after you see today's show, because in today's show, I'm going to make the opening argument if I had been the prosecutor against Donald Trump. Now, my heart's not in it because, A, I'm a defense attorney. All my life I've been a defense attorney. Only once in my life did I consult with the government in trying to uh, prosecute a former FBI agent who had tipped off Whitey Bulger um, and helped him kill witnesses against him. So I worked with a district attorney and trying to keep him in jail. I guess I also worked a little bit advising the Israeli government on the prosecution of uh, John Demyanyik, the uh, Ivan the Terrible of, of um, during the Holocaust. But I'm a defense attorney. My heart's in being a defense attorney. I also don't think that the case against Donald Trump that I'm going to be advocating is the right one to bring against the man who's running for president. But I'm an advocate and I got probably hundreds of letters from people after I did my show 13 days ago, making the argument for Trump saying, well, let's see how good you are. Why don't you try to make the argument against Trump? So um, I'm doing it. And um, tell me what you think. It's just the outline of an oral argument that if I were the prosecuting attorney, I would make. Here's the way it would go. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it gives me no pleasure to be in the situation I'm in today, bringing a criminal prosecution against a man who once served in the highest office in this land as president of the United States uh, for four years. And it brings me great pain to be bringing a criminal case against a man who is the leading candidate to replace the current president of the United States. It's not something that has ever happened before in our history. 
the government of the incumbent president prosecuting the leading candidate for running against him. And if that's going to be done under the rule of law, it has to be a strong case and an inevitable case. There has to essentially be no choice. There has to either be a prosecution or we would be saying we don't operate under the rule of law. No one is above the law, not a former president, not even a potential future president. I know how heavy a burden I have today because if the defendant here is convicted, it may influence many people in who they vote for for president. And that's not the way president should be elected um, based on a criminal prosecution. It should be based on the assessment of the voters as to what kind of a job they have done, what kind of a job they will be doing. But I'm the prosecutor. It's my responsibility under the Constitution. We have an adversary system. There'll be a good defense attorney making the arguments against the prosecution. Um, listen to his argument. Listen to my argument. Listen, most importantly, to the judge's instructions. But then you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, 12 people selected at random, ordinary folks, peers, peers, uh, not specially educated, not specially equipped, um, as Thomas Jefferson once said, put a problem to a plowman or a professor and you're just as likely to get a good answer from the, from the plowman. And that's the theory behind our jury system. We don't pick professors or elitists uh, to be our jurors. They may be randomly selected, but we pick people out of the hat, essentially. You've all made it on the jury because you have no bias. You've not been disqualified. So I know you listen to the evidence with an open mind. And by the end, if I have not proved to you beyond a reasonable doubt every element of the offense, I will actually ask you to acquit. I'm here to see justice done. But if I do persuade you of every element of these crimes, beyond a reasonable doubt, I will ask you to convict. Even if you don't want to do so, it would be your duty to convict. Even if you like the defendant and plan to vote for him, it would be your duty to convict. Likewise, even if you dislike the defendant and plan to vote against him, it would be your duty to acquit. If you honestly come to the conclusion that I have not proved my case beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, the central issue in this case is the defendant's intent, his state of mind, and his knowledge. We know he did things that he's been indicted for. He tried to get a slate of alternative electors. Some people call it fake electors. Some people call it alternative electors. But if he honestly believed that he had won the election, then proposing a slate of alternative elections would not be, would not be criminal, nor would his attempt to find um, several thousand votes if he honestly thought those votes were there to be found. We will argue to you, however, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that he didn't believe that, that he knew he had lost the election, that he knew he was trying to usurp the power of the voters to decide who is the president of the United States. We will prove to you beyond a reasonable doubt 
that he had actual knowledge, belief, intention to undo an honest election. Now, we have a burden and we have a problem. How do you prove a person's intention? We have CAT scans. We have PET scans. We have all kinds of brilliant new technology that allows us to look at the inside of the brain. We can see aneurysms. We can see tumors. We can't see thoughts. We can't see beliefs. And so beliefs and thoughts have to be proved by circumstantial evidence. Now, as I sit here today, I don't know what Donald Trump actually believed. Did he talk himself into the claim that he won the election? Did he honestly believe that all the commentators were wrong and all of his lawyers were wrong and many of his friends and many of his followers were wrong when they told him he had lost? Did he think he was smarter than all the rest of them? I don't know the answer to that question. And I'm not asking you to make a decision about that. But there is a principle of law, an old principle of law, that I'm going to ask you to apply. And that principle is called willful blindness. We all know what that means in, in common sense. If, if you know something's happening and, and you don't want to be accused of knowing it, you know, you you know, that famous cartoon of the three monkeys, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. Well, willful blindness is a concept that says you can't just hide your head in the sand like an ostrich and say, look, I think I know what's going on here, but I don't want to know. So I'm going to take actions to prevent myself from learning this. This happens very commonly, for example, in insider trading cases, you get the head of a hedge fund uh, who's making a fortune of money and people suspect, how is he always picking the right stocks? Maybe he has inside information. We've had cases like that where the government has been able to prove that although he didn't know that this particular stock was promoted to him by one of his subordinates who had inside information, he surely should have suspected it. The stock just did too well too quickly. Was it based on inside information? Well, you can't speculate about that. But if he told his underlings who were picking stocks, look, you pick your stocks, I don't care how you get the information. You go out and you get your information any way you want. Just don't tell me. I don't want to know who you spoke to. I don't want to know where you got the information. I just don't want to know. I just want you to tell me on your word that this is a stock that's going up or that this is a stock that's going down. I trade on stocks up and down, but I don't want to know. So don't you dare tell me, don't say, I got a friend, uh, I was having a drink. No, I don't want to know that. I just want to know the results. If you can prove that, even if the jury is convinced that he didn't know, the fact that he stopped himself from knowing it affirmatively would be enough to convict him 
of knowing and intending. And that's what we claim happened here. What we plan to prove to you is that Donald Trump closed his ears, closed his eyes, didn't open, didn't close his mouth. Donald Trump is incapable of closing his mouth, but he was capable of closing his eyes and closing his ears. He built a wall around him. He only spoke to people who he knew would tell him that he had won the election. He didn't watch television stations like CNN or MSNBC, which told him he had lost. He only watched the media that told him he had won. His favorite movie, 2000 Mules, a film that basically said the election was fixed. He picked and chose what he was going to hear, what he was going to see. He made a willful, deliberate decision to willfully blind himself from the obvious knowledge that he had lost the election. If we can prove that beyond a reasonable doubt, even if we can't prove his subjective state of mind, if we can prove that he created a barrier, he created a wall around him, to prevent himself from learning the truth because he knew that if he learned the truth, he couldn't say with a straight face that he had won the election. He'd have to be lying. He didn't want to lie. So instead of lying, he prevented himself from learning the truth so that he could say to himself, what am I? I won the election. People told me I won the election. Look at what happened in this state. Look at what happened in that state. Look at the picture of somebody walking around with boxes of bells. I believe I won the election. No, 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 but you didn't. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that I didn't win the election. I only want to hear that I won the election. If you believe that, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, then you can convict Donald Trump of the crimes for which he is charged because you will then have been convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that Donald Trump knew and willfully violated the law because he willfully blinded himself from knowing facts that would not have permitted him to say he had won the election. This will not be an easy task for you. There are no x-rays. There are no fingerprints. There are no confessions. There's no videotape. I wish I could say to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Donald Trump told, told Mr. X, and here, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, here's Mr. X. Mr. X then gets up and says, oh, Donald Trump told me he had lost the election. He knew he had lost the election, but he didn't want to leave the Oval Office. And so he decided to lie about that. If I had such a witness, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, believe me, I would present that witness and you would have an easy job. I don't have that witness. What I do have is witnesses who will tell you that Donald Trump didn't want to know the truth, that Donald Trump protected himself from hearing facts that would have made him say to himself, I lost the election. So work hard on this. Think hard about this. And if you conclude that Donald Trump knew that he lost the election, but that he willfully blinded himself from getting the information necessary for him to be absolutely certain about that. If you conclude that he took actions, took steps 
to willfully blind himself, then you must convict and you must convict whatever you think of Donald Trump as an individual, whatever you think of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. This is a court of law, not a polling place. This is a sacred place where law prevails over partisanship, where law prevails over politics, where law prevails over personal opinion. So ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I know you will do your duty. And if you do, you should convict Donald Trump of these crimes. Thank you for your attention, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. So that in essence is the argument um, I would make. Um, I don't think prosecution is gonna make that argument. I think the prosecution is afraid of that argument. I think the prosecution is gonna say he didn't have to know. Um, even if he honestly believed he had won the election, um, he loses because that's not a reasonable belief. And the judge may instruct the belief has to be reasonable. If the judge instructs that the belief has to be reasonable, there'll be a conviction and the conviction will very likely be reversed on appeal because that would be an improper instruction. If the judge instructs on this notion of willful blindness, there also may be a reversal of the conviction. Courts are very tough on that. Uh, they should be even tougher. But um, in order to give a willful blindness instruction, there has to be actual evidence that the uh, defendant uh, engaged in purposeful contrivance to avoid learning the facts. And there's an 11th Circuit case that uses that language. There's a Supreme Court case that uses language a little bit uh, like that. There's a Second Circuit case that uses language like that. Uh, unless, um, but under the Second Circuit, even if you can prove willful blindness, if the defendant actually believes the fact, even if he believes it because he blinded himself, you still must acquit. It's very complicated. It's very difficult. And, and I've argued quite a few cases on the willful blindness instruction. And courts, it's, it's a court-invented concept. It's not in statute in most states. It's something courts have invented in order to make it easier for the prosecution to prove um, uh, intent or to prove knowledge in circumstances where they can't uh, prove it. But some of the courts of appeals have been hard and said, you can't give that instruction unless there is actual evidence that he willfully blinded himself. You can't just do it as an alternative to intention or willfulness. You can't say, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, you have to find that he willfully or intentionally committed the crime but you can find it if you think he willfully blinded himself. No, there has to be evidence that he willfully blinded himself. Evidence of the kind that I'm talking about now when I said in my <clears throat> opening argument in a case involving insider trading, if you have evidence that the boss said, I don't want to know, don't tell me, that would be enough to give a willful blindness instruction. But just inferring um, that he must have blinded himself might not be enough. So this is complicated. Having said that, this should not be the basis of a criminal prosecution against the man running against the incumbent for office. It's too close a case. It's too close a case. In order to convict a person running against the incumbent president, there should be a 
slam dunk case. There should be that videotape. There should be the testimony. There should be the smoking gun. We don't have smoking guns here. We have the smoking cigarette butt. In the Florida case, um, the waving of the classified information, it's smoking, but it's only a cigarette butt. It's not a whole cigarette. It's certainly not a gun. So um, go and watch my opening argument um, for Trump and then compare it to the opening argument against Trump. Write to me, tell me which persuaded you. You think I'm a better prosecutor or a better defense attorney? I'm a better defense attorney. But um, tell me whether you think the arguments uh, for Trump or against Trump uh, would persuade you and, and which, are, which are better. Having said that, I don't think there's enough here to go after a man running for president, but that's not the issue today. The issue today is what kind of an argument would you make if you were the lawyer uh, against Trump? In my class in criminal law for years, I would make students argue both sides of the issue. When a student made a very, very persuasive argument against the death penalty, I would say, all right, now make the argument in favor of the death penalty. Sometimes they could, sometimes they couldn't. Sometimes emotionally they couldn't if they were very strongly against the death penalty. But lawyers are supposed to be able to put aside their emotions and make arguments on all sides of every issue. You know, when I was a, a debate champion in high school and college, um, we would learn at the last minute whether we were pro or con. We knew the subject. Capital punishment should be abolished. Uh, communist China should be admitted to the UN. 18-year-olds should vote. That was before the amendment that permitted them to vote. I would argue both sides of those issues. And so as a lawyer, I've learned to argue both sides of those issues. All right. <clears throat> Speaking of multiple sides of issues, let's get to letters. And there are many of them that present many points of view. All right. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Why don't somebody file bar charges against the 65 Project lawyers? I think that would be a very good idea. I think the 65 Project lawyers are engaging in unethical conduct. Uh, they are targeting people. They are violating the principle of blind justice. They're going after only, only people who are, who are pro-Trump. And I think that does violate the the rules of professional responsibility, certainly the spirit of the rule of law. So I hope people will follow charges against the 65 Project. Remember, we uh, had a case where a woman refused to represent a man and uh, in a divorce situation, and the courts said, no, you, you, you can be a feminist, but you can't be a sexist. So this letter says, I'd rather the lawyer have a sign on their door telling me who they prefer not to represent. It's a good, it's a good point. I mean, do you really want to be represented by somebody who's just grudgingly representing you? Of course, public defenders don't get a choice as to who they defend. Uh, they have to defend everybody coming through the door, just like emergency room doctors don't get a choice as to who they treat. They get the patient who's, who's sickest and most in need. Uh, you are a principled advocate that I have great respect for, but what an ugly profession you are part of. Those who seek to politicize prosecution or eat their own by filing gratuitous bar charges against colleagues are a special category of disgusting. Thank you for standing up for justice. You know I agree with that. Um, wow, you really hit the nail on the head. Naming lawyers as unindicted defendants, co-conspirators, to cripple the defense is chilling. That's exactly what happened in the D.C. case. They um, named these uh, lawyers, uh, potential defense witnesses, um, as unindicted co-conspirators. 
in order to prevent them from testifying for the defendant. Of course, that became somewhat moot now because these very same people were indicted in um, Georgia. And now, unless they get severances and get their trials completed, they probably also won't be able to testify. Um, Alan, I've been watching you and reading about you for decades, all the way back to the old William Buckley shows. Uh, always like you, and I respect you very much for following the strict lib libertarian position, as you have always done, regardless of the consequences. Thank you for fighting the good fight. <laughs> You're the best and remarkable in any age, but especially at 85 years old. God bless you. 85, yeah. Two more days of being 84, September 1st, I become 85. And then a couple of days later, I become father of the bride, which is much, much more important and much, much make, make me much happier. If the appeals court were to bump Trump's trial dates beyond November 2024 after the election, what would prosecutors do? Would they drop the case? Would they ramp up the case? Would they indict more? Um, I don't know the answer to those questions. And I think the cases, some of them will be moved up. Whether any of them will be moved after the election, I don't know. I can't imagine that the complete 19 defendant Georgia case will be able to be tried before the election. But, um, you know, if you get a judge who says, well, you don't have to read all the discovery, just skim it. You don't have to read every word. Maybe an unfair trial will occur. Over 100 law clerks have worked under Justice Thomas and have signed a letter firmly standing up for him and his integrity. They do exist. Thank the good Lord. Well, I wish Justice Thomas would, however, not do all the things that he does and, and his wife um, as well. I'm not saying they have ever done anything to violate any rules, but the appearance of justice by a Supreme Court justice is, is, is pretty important. Now, of course, uh, feminism correctly says you don't blame a wife for a husband's views and you don't blame a husband for a wife's views. And uh, Justice Thomas's wife is certainly entitled to have whatever extreme views she wants to have. And as long as Justice Thomas is not directly influenced by it, these are hard questions. But I do think the Supreme Court should set up clear, unambiguous rules about what justices can do and what they can't do. And I'm sure Justice Thomas would comply with the letter of the law scrupulously. Naming someone an unindicted co-conspirator is truly nauseating. If they are co-conspirators, indict them. Because after all, a district attorney can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. Instead, just ruin somebody's reputation with no way to defend oneself against the accusation. You know how far back that argument goes for me? Um, I was on the board of the National, National Board of the American Civil Liberties Union. And they named Richard Nixon as an unindicted co-conspirator. I was very happy to see Nixon uh, impeached. If he were to be impeached, prosecuted, I think he passed what I call the Richard Nixon test, obstruction of justice and all that. I was furious when he was named as an unindicted co-conspirator. And I tried to get the ACLU to intervene in the case because naming somebody as an unindicted co-conspirator means you're accused in the court of public opinion, indeed in the court of law, and you have no opportunity to defend yourself. That's so un-American. That's so in violation of the rule of law. Okay, next question. When I was growing up back in the day, the mantra was, I may not agree with what you were saying, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. That's a quote or a paraphrase attributed to Voltaire. 
um, who was a brilliant man who had terrible, terrible views on, on religion. He was really intolerant and a bit anti-Semitic, but also anti-Catholic. So he was an equal opportunity abuser. Uh, you don't hear that anymore. Now it's saying what we want the way we like. No, now it's say what we want the way we like it or we'll cancel you. I agree with you. I think we've lost something very important by an unwillingness to defend views we don't agree with. Uh, the paradigm of that, again, is Professor Lawrence Tribe, who uh, I've known him for, I don't know how many years. I've never heard him make an argument that didn't serve his own political uh, ends. I've never heard him make an argument that uh, undercuts um, his uh, partisan political views. Maybe he has, maybe I just don't know about it, but uh, I sure don't know of any, okay. Um, my understanding is that the famous Shakespeare quote means all the king's prosecutors as there were no attorneys for defending the accused at that point in time in England. Well, you know, it's interesting. The concept of defense attorney um, may not have existed in the form that we now know it, but the concept of a defense attorney functionally goes back to the book of Daniel, which is in the Apocrypha. You may remember that story. So uh, two old men came upon a young married woman. Uh, I think I have my Bible right. Um, and, and asked her to have sex. And she refused. And, um, and they said, if you refuse to have sex with us, we will say you voluntarily had sex with us. You're an adulteress and then you'll be stoned. And that's what happened. She refused to have sex. They falsely accused her. And she was sentenced to be stoned. But then Daniel became her defense attorney and pulled off a brilliant ploy. He required that the two witnesses who were to testify in front of the judges be separated. It's still called the rule or the Daniel rule or the separation rule. So he got the court to issue a ruling that the two old men who had accused her had to be kept separate. They couldn't talk to each other. And then when they were cross-examined and they were each asked where the alleged sexual encounter occurred, they each had different versions and inconsistent versions, versions and the court um, uh, found that they were guilty and they were stoned to death. And the alleged adulteress was honored and returned to her husband where she lived a happy life. And so Daniel may have been one of the first defense attorneys also um, I know a lot about early Greek law and uh, there were speakers, they were called speakers, um, but they were defense attorneys and they would make the argument for the accused. So although we didn't have a formal concept of defense attorneys, uh, the reality of defense attorneys goes back 2000 years to the Bible and about the same amount of time back to Greece. Well, actually, probably 22, 2300 years back to Greece and maybe uh, 27, 2800 years back to the Bible. So it's, it's pretty old and pretty enduring and I'm proud to be among the defense attorneys who can cross up uh, in cross-examination lying witnesses. All right, so I won't see you on Monday. Um, I'll be singing a song. I actually get to sing a song at my daughter's wedding, it's an old Yiddish song that the father sings when his youngest daughter is, is, is married. The youngest daughter is called the Majinka. 
So I get to sing the Majinka song. So you'll excuse me, I won't be thinking about you between 5.30 and uh, 6 o'clock on Monday, because that's exactly when the chuppah, the marriage, uh, is uh, taking place. But I'll see you on Tuesday and on Monday. If you miss me, go back and see my argument 13 days ago when I made the opening argument for Donald Trump. Uh, see you next week. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design, the kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 